Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome, one and all, to another edition of Family Stories, the special edition of our podcast made all the better because the script is written by you, our listeners. We're going to start with a lucky escape sent in by Richard Garnett. He writes, Hi, guys. I love your podcast, and it's accompanied me on many trips there and back for cancer treatment. This is a story my father typed up and sent me before he died. I hope you can read it. He was in the Royal Navy and won a medal at the Second Battle of Narvik. At the end, he encourages me to always believe in miracles, which, bearing in mind I was told six years ago, I only had nine to eighteen months to live. I absolutely do. This is Richard's father's account, which he entitled, Do I Believe? In miracles. On the evening of May the 12th, 1940, the destroyer I was serving him was on her way back to Scapa Flow after taking part in the Norwegian campaign in the Narvik area. My ship was alone and steaming at 20 knots. There was a rough following sea and we were rolling quite a bit. It was still daylight. 
The Norwegian coast lay 150 miles to the east and Scapa was 250 miles to the south. At 6pm I was relieved as officer of the watch on the bridge and hurriedly made my way along the upper deck towards the stern where my cabin was. Just as I reached the after superstructure, a wave broke onto the waist of the ship and lifted me over the guardrails into a cold Norwegian sea. I blew hard into my inflatable lifebelt and in a loud voice asked God to save me. A sailor who was keeping watch on deck and who happened to be looking astern at the time saw me go over the side. He at once telephoned the bridge and I was rescued after barely 15 minutes in the sea. Yes, I do believe in miracles. And this story was sent in by listener Colin Tate. Dear We Have Ways, I thoroughly enjoy your podcast and look forward to it every week. It's an absolute must listen. I've been with you since about episode six. I've also been really enjoying your family stories. Some poignant, some funny and some utterly amazing. And thought I'd tell you of my uncle, Joseph Henderson, or Josie as he was better known. He grew up in Stevenston, North Ayrshire, on the banks of the Firth of Clyde, and at that time home to one of the world's largest munition factories at Ardea. This was run by the Swedish conglomerate Noble, and it employed over 13,000 people with twice-daily train services that delivered workers direct to the plant. Though he worked at the munitions factory, like almost everybody in Stevenston, his storeman job didn't save him from conscription. Like many of his friends, he joined the 6th Battalion Royal Scots Fusiliers. He landed on Juno Beach on D-Day Plus 9. His battalion was part of the 44th Lowland Infantry Brigade, 15th Scottish Infantry Division. Eleven days later, his battalion was blooded during Operation Epsom. The battalion diary showed 21 dead, 113 wounded and 9 missing, and commented that they gave a good account of themselves as this was the first time they had been in combat. After that, his battalion were kept in line without attacking, but subject to shelling and mortaring and the inevitable attrition of men. Four dead on the 10th of July, six dead on the 11th. They moved to the tiny village of Gavrus on the 16th of July and prepared for Operation Greenline, a diversionary attack intended to draw enemy attention away from the much larger Goodwood battle. They were heavily shelled during that time and one of the very few stories that Uncle Josie told was then. They had sat huddled in deep slit trenches the enemy shelling getting ever closer, as if the German artillery had specifically zeroed in on his trench. He said his sergeant shouted, Don't go anywhere, you're safe here, sit it out. But his mate from Stevenston, who was conscripted along with him, jumped out of the trench. Uncle Josie told him not to be so daft and to get back in, but instead he ran. Josie looked over the trench and watched his mate run about 30 feet before he was hit. He said one second he was there, the next there was nothing. The battalion diary records on the 19th of July show that their casualties for Operation Greenline were 14 dead, 50 wounded and 5 missing. His mate, Fusilier Robert Crook, lies in Banville La Campagne War Cemetery. Gavrus now has a Rue Royal Scots. Uncle Josie was with the 6th Royal Scots Fusiliers all the way through France, Belgium, Holland and then into Germany and like many he said very little about these experiences. He told us snippets, such as following in after the flamethrowers, 
or running down the side of a wall shooting while the Germans were running down the other side doing the same. I've looked at the battalion war diaries following his route through Europe. The casualty figures suggest that surviving as a frontline infantryman from D-Day to VE Day is remarkable. He finished his war just north of Hamburg. Uncle Josie returned to Stevenston, but there were reminders of what he went through. He was regularly caught by the widowed wife of the fusilier as she pushed a pram with a child that his mate had never seen. She would ask what had happened to him, wondering if maybe there was a mistake and if he could be a POW or injured. He never said anything about what happened, to her at least, and carried this burden and hid it at the bottom of a beer glass, like many, I suspect. Next up is Sam Crowley, who writes, Hi, Alan James. I love the show and the conversations between you two, as well as the guests you bring on. I'm currently re-listening to the incredible show on the Spitfire's first flight. Wow, you two have produced a podcast that I enjoy again and again. Here are some stories from my dad, 2nd Lieutenant Robert F. Crowley. As a pilot, he flew 17 missions in a B-17, with the 8th during 1943. He was a hero in many ways, but like so many of his generation, he viewed it as nothing more than doing his duty. I grew up with the Vietnam War and the draft. My older siblings were protesting against the war and thought the draft was unfair. There were discussions at the table when one brother was about to be drafted about him possibly going to Canada. I asked my dad about when he was drafted. He volunteered on the 8th of December 1941, the day after Pearl Harbour. He said that everyone went and volunteered the next day. The lines were around the block. He joined the Army Air Corps because he wanted to fly. He was 21 years old and his family lived in Chicago, across from Wrigley Field where the Chicago Cubs baseball team still plays. He trained and flew in the southern US and then became the co-pilot on a war bond tour with a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. This war hero was a pilot who had flown a B-17 against the Japanese in the Pacific on the 8th of December. Dad said that he dropped some bombs and missed everything, but they said he sank a bunch of ships because they needed heroes. Dad said the war hero was a tall, good-looking blonde. When he stepped out of the plane by a crowd of factory workers, all you heard were the cries from the women as he waved his hands and laughed. One night, the war hero showed up at the plane with a girl. It was late They were both drunk and he had promised to take her up for a flight in the B-17. Dad said, well, what can I do? He outranked me and ordered me out of the way when I objected. A member of the crew, a sergeant that flew with him in the Pacific, appeared. He took the woman, tossed her in the taxi and told the driver to get the hell out of there. The war hero and the sergeant argued that eventually the pilot laughed and shrugged his shoulders. Dad eventually made it to England in 1943. He told me this story about one night when London was being bombed. He said, We were all in the barracks when there was a knock at the door. A bunch of abuse was hurled at the door because it was the barracks and you didn't knock. When there was a second knock, we all started looking at each other puzzled. Then, a German pilot in full flight gear walked in and handed his pistol to the nearest guy to surrender. He had been shot down by a night fighter and had seen the airbase in the darkness while parachuting down. He didn't want to take the chance of being killed by civilians, so he made his way to surrender on the base. He spoke English and talked planes, as pilots do everywhere. He asked about the fighter that shot him down, and we told him about it. We asked about various German planes, and he told us about them. 
We told him what it was like to fly the Allied planes he asked about. Eventually, we decided it was too late to turn him in. We had him sleep in the barracks with us and planned to give him a good breakfast. Next morning, we were in the chow line with the German Luftwaffe pilot in full flight gear. Nobody said or noticed anything. We sat down and were eating when an officer came up with MPs. We all stood up and made the MPs wait until the pilot finished his meal before they took him away. Sam's father was injured on his last mission to Bremen in Germany. This is how he described that flight. That day, fog rolled in over England, keeping the fighters on the ground. The decision was made for the bombers to continue with the mission. The pilot leading the formation was new and inexperienced. He took us between two cloud layers. The Jerry's poured out of the top layer and a Fokkerwolf 190 hit us right away. Two 20mm bullets hit the cockpit. One hit the instrument panel, sending shrapnel everywhere. It hit so hard I thought the seat was broken. I couldn't move my arm and my oxygen mask was knocked off. Shrapnel had cut up my face. The engines were hit too and the other pilot was busy flying the plane. I couldn't get the mask back on with one hand, so I turned around and tugged on the top gunner's leg to have him help with the mask. When he dropped down and saw me, his reaction told me I looked bad. Shrapnel had cut the straps, but he was able to help me get it back on. We had to drop out of the formation because we couldn't keep up anymore. Then we were set on by four ME-109s. We managed to get into some clouds to hide, but knew it wasn't going to last. A poll was taken. Do we fight it out? Which would mean we would be shot down. Or do we put our landing gear down and surrender? We decided to surrender. Eventually we came out of the clouds. The Jerrys were still there. They saw us and started turning and banking towards us to start their attack. We were watching, when suddenly first one, then two exploded and a third went down in flames. The fourth turned and fled. Two British Spitfires had appeared despite the fog in England. They came alongside and helped point us back towards England because our instruments were shot up. Then they left. Dad met the two Spitfire pilots a few days later when they came by the hospital to visit him. They were Polish nationals and had taken off despite orders not to fly because of the weather. They wanted to hunt Germans. Stuart Burbridge writes, My grandfather, Flight Lieutenant Peter Burbridge, was sadly one of the 55,000-plus Bomber Command aircrew who didn't survive the war. He had a good run, being posted missing, believed killed, on his 33rd operation against Berlin on the 22nd of November 1943. He spent his entire service with 97th Squadron Pathfinder Force as a bomb aimer. His skipper on his first tour only died last April, aged 100. His name was Johnny Savage, and owing to his distinguished wartime and post-wartime career, he was afforded obituaries in the national press and crew photos were often printed as well. I had the privilege of seeing my grandfather's picture in print on quite a few occasions. I'm in possession of his logbook and his medals, including a DFC, which are my proudest possessions. He took part in quite a few well-known raids, including the first Gomorrah raid and the raid on Piedermunder. His most interesting operation was probably the Operation Bellico shuttle raid on June 21st, 1943. Four 97 Squadron aircraft and 60 main force lanks took off from the UK and bombed the old Zeppelin sheds at Friedrichshafen, which were being used to develop V-weapons. It was midsummer, so the plan was to fox the German defences and head on over the Alps to Algeria rather than return over France as the sun was rising. 
Plenty of accounts of the raid have my grandfather putting the first TIs right on the roof of the shed. His aircraft was damaged, and although it made it to Algeria, it was written off on landing. As a result, he and the rest of his crew weren't able to participate in the return leg a few days later, when the rest of the force bombed the Italian naval dockyard of La Spezia, flying on to England. My grandfather and his crew had to go the very long way round via Gibraltar as passengers. It's always nice to read accounts of that raid, which was incidentally the Allies' first strike at the V weapons programme, and also only the second time that a master bomber was used on a raid. My grandfather had met my grandmother, a VAD nurse and a Litchfield girl, when he had been based at the operational training unit at Fradley in 1942. They married in the spring of 1943, just before he was killed. She had told him that she was expecting. My dad and his twin sister were born in June 1944, seven months after his death. This story is from listener Dominic Butler, who writes, My grandfather, John Noble, was a flight sergeant serving with the RAF Training Command in South Africa, predominantly at No. 45 Air School. After joining in 1941, he was sent to St John's in London and then to a variety of places for training. On his first training flight, he watched as a tiger moth crashed at the end of a runway. He felt helpless as the crews rushed to the wreckage. Then his flight lieutenant found him to tell him to suit up, as it was his turn now. Eventually, he did enough to pass as a pilot, ending up in the Empire Training Scheme to teach navigators for Bomber Command. He was posted to South Africa, where he did his final training on airspeed Oxfords and finally the mighty Avro Anson. It was in this aircraft that most of his japes happened, including nearly landing on his CO, who was flying beneath him at the time, and opening a parachute inside the aircraft with the door open for which he was docked two weeks' pay. On one occasion, he was to fly an old Avro 504k biplane to another airfield. He encountered engine trouble and had to land in a field, crashing into a massive rock. After leaving the aircraft unharmed, John was greeted by some local tribesmen who grinned at him. As he set off in search of help, he turned back to see the tribesmen nicking the control stick from the plane. John often got into minor scrapes like this, He was lucky with his posting and got the chance to visit Egypt and the pyramids and met up with his brother there before he was shipped to Italy as a B-24 rear gunner. Later John returned to South Africa to train navigators. On one occasion he was flying with two students. One of them was suffering quite badly and handing notes to John that they needed to get medical help. Upon dropping the plane a few thousand feet, John suddenly got another note. All fine. Carry on. The next note read... Wind had sprouts for dinner. The notes were later taken and hung up in the sergeant's mess for all to laugh at. At Christmas in 1944, the men had a party where they were offered beer at two different prices. The cheaper price was just a penny for a beer, a bargain, but because they were low on glasses, it came in a bedpan. John and his mates opted for the bedpan as the local beer was already a bit like piss water. Finally, John met the love of his life out there a local South African girl called Val, and they married. John managed to get her back to England in 1946 and set up as an optician, running a family business that still runs today. His full stories in his book, White Flash, a reference to the training flash worn on the chip hat, which I published for him shortly after his death and is available on Amazon. 
Our final story is from Michael Milner-Watt, who writes, James is always talking about the importance of support and service troops to the Allied war effort. So here's the story of my granddad. It shows that an ordinary electrician in the RAF could have a remarkable war without being in combat. Grandad grew up near Middlesbrough and joined the RAF just before the war and was posted to Bomber Command. September the 3rd, 1939, found him guarding Avro Anson's on dispersal at RAF Thornaby with a pickaxe handle. He discovered that we were at war when the squadron CO cycled round the aerodrome shouting, The balloon's gone up! He served in the UK until December 1941 and was then shipped out to the Far East. He saw ships torpedoed in his convoy on the way and slept on deck for fear of drowning. He was due to go to Singapore, but was diverted to Calcutta en route when Singapore was captured. He served in India and Burma until 1945, working on Ansons, Venturas, Wellingtons, Liberators and finally C-47s. In 1943 he contracted malaria and woke up in hospital with a cobra sitting on his chest. His airfields were bombed repeatedly, and his mother was mistakenly sent a telegram telling her he had been killed. His squadron supported bombing raids, supply drops and para drops in 1944, and in 1945, then converted to transport command. He returned home in late 1945 to find that his mother, briefly thinking him dead, had sold his favourite motorbike. He married a local girl who had been his pen pal throughout his posting abroad, and became a computer programmer for British Steel after the war. During the war, he lost a lot of friends and only felt able to talk about it to his grandchildren once plenty of time had passed. A wonderful man, a huge influence on me, and greatly missed. That's it for today. Fabulous variety in our listeners' stories as ever. Thanks for sharing them with the whole We Have Ways community. If you'd like your family story considered for the podcast, please email it to we have ways podcast at gmail.com heading it family stories so we don't miss it or you can post it on our members site a reminder that's patreon.com slash we have ways thanks for listening